Hello, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. This podcast aims to mark and celebrate an emerging theological and religious scholarship among religious people who self-identify as queer. As noted in our previous episode, Out of the Closet and Into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not inherently a secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand their own resistance to be associated with their faith. Throughout this series, we will be interviewing scholars and queer activists to understand how communities have been developing contextual theologies to challenge and critique the ingrained heteronormativity in theological thought, spiritual practices, and institutional governance. In our previous episode, we outlined the tenets of liberation theology and how they can be utilized by the queer community to liberate themselves from mainstream theology. As we noted, liberation theology, while often found in an academic setting, is first and foremost found in community. I'm excited today to be talking about what liberation really means to queer individuals and communities. And to help me, I have Dr. Melissa Wilcox here. Dr. Melissa Wilcox is a professor and hosting family and community chair of religious studies at the University of California, Riverside. She is the author and editor of numerous books, journals, and articles that focus on gender, sexuality, and religion. Her latest work, Queer Nuns, Religion, Activism, and Series Parody, was published in the Sexual Culture Series at New York University Press in 2018. Her other books include Coming Out in Christianity, Religion, Identity, and Community, Religion in Today's World, Global Issues, Sociological Perspectives, and her book, which she won the 2010 Book Award of the ASA Sociology of Religion section, Queer Women and Religious Individualism. Dr. Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your story? How did you come to working and studying in religious studies? Did you grow up around any faith-based communities? And how did you come to navigate the specific intersection of sexuality and religion? So I'm actually a product of the distribution requirement system. I was a biology major as an undergrad. I was headed for vet school. Still thought I might be headed for vet school when I graduated with my bachelor's in biology four years later. But in the process in my sophomore year, I took a class that fulfilled a requirement, fit in my schedule, and looked marginally interesting. And it turned out to be a class on the history of Christianity. I come from a family with both Catholic and Protestant heritage and a lot of disaffection with religion. So I was, I didn't know very much about it and was utterly shocked to discover that the shape that Christianity took in my present moment that I saw around me, it was the early 1990s, the moral majority was on the rise. I'm from the Bay Area. One of the major places that it was taking shape was in the Bay Area. And um, to discover that that was all a process of historical development. It was a product of things that had they happened a little bit differently, Christianity might look completely different. And it seems like such a simple thing to say, but it blew my mind. And I was utterly fascinated, looked in the religious studies department for classes again, the next time I had an opening in my schedule, and there was a class called Women in the Ancient World. And I was doing a lot of, it was called Women's Studies or Feminist Studies then. I was doing a lot of gender studies work already. And again, outside of the biology major, whenever I had extra time. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I took that class. And, and from that class, I learned that there were people, again, in this day and age, while I was in college all around me, who found feminist resources in the Bible and thought the Bible was a feminist text. And my brain exploded again. Um, and then I took another class with another professor in that department. And 
we started studying sexuality in ancient texts. And again, just the idea that there were sacred texts where people were sexual beyond sort of the, you know, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, depending on which version of the Bible um, you read, was completely came out of left field. What do you mean sex and what? How does that go together? It turns out that I still think that that particular professor was the very first person to start doing any kind of a sort of nascent queer studies in religion as opposed to the earlier gay and lesbian studies in religion model. So I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time because most religious studies departments, I would have taken a couple of classes and gone, I'm going to go to vet school. But I got utterly fascinated, ended up in grad school. My first graduate program, I looked around and it was a completely different kind of program. And I went, oh no, what's happened? But the rest of the story is really in many ways a story of finding the people that were already doing that work and creating a lot more space for the rest of us. Yeah, and I guess my story is very similar in pursuing religious studies at Skidmore College. So I guess I'm wondering for you, what does it mean to study religion queerly? I think this is a lot of times when I take queer studies and religious studies classes, this is something we talk about, but I think it has a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. So I was wondering if you could touch upon that for us. I probably have a lot of answers to that question. But in many ways, for me at the core, it, it I wrote about this in an article a couple of years ago, it means taking queer and trans people at our word. There's still too much of an assumption that you can do what I sort of snarkily call ad queers and stark approaches. Like, oh, look, queer people do Christianity too. Yay, let's write about that. Um, and we're not talking about how queer people profoundly queer Christianity. We, we won't go to where you've got there's already plenty of gay theologians who've written about this. And certainly in terms of just sort of individual commentaries and blogs and things that people post on social media, we, we won't go to the queer man who tells us about getting off on Jesus on the cross as a teenager. Like that's somehow not okay because again, you have to leave the sex aside. And I just think we're not, we're not really fully comprehending religion until we can say, all right, I want to understand if somebody says this is worship, if somebody says this is religion, if somebody says this is spirituality, and I want to understand how people are thinking about religion and spirituality today, I have to understand how those folks are doing it also, not just the ones that are, that are doing religion and spirituality in ways that look just like what cis straight people do, because not all cis straight people do religion and spirituality that way either. Yeah, thank you for exploring that question with us, Professor Wilcox. I want to touch a little bit deeper on something you said, which is that there's often this assumption that queer people or queer people of faith are involved in different realms as social justice activists and queer folks in general. I'm wondering, what do you make of that assumption? It's often seen that religion and queerness are conflicting ideas and what does it mean for someone to hold both identities? Yeah, so there's a great scholar by the name of Heather White who has done some really, really important work to help us understand what a short history that assumption actually has. A story that I tell in one of my books is about a gay journalist who came to visit the liberal arts college where I used to teach, which was 
just about as rural as Skidmore and maybe even a little bit more. And he, my friend who was also a teacher there at the time, who also doesn't work there anymore, was the one hosting him. And they saw me across the quad and he waved me down and said, oh, come over and meet my guest who's visiting for a few days. And the guest was very happy to meet another person who did group studies until he found out that I also study religion and that I study queer people who are religious. And his next response was, what do you mean? There are gay Southern Baptists. And I was kind of like, of course there are. Like, what kind of a question is that? Like, is the sky blue? And so I said, yes. And he said, well, what are they doing? Having their heads chopped off? This is not revolutionary France, actually. And no, I mean, occasionally, if they're like leading a congregation or something, occasionally the congregation gets kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention against the principles of Baptist churches in general. But of course they're there. So this this assumption is is so deep and so widespread. My students all know that I'm fond of pointing out that in Gaga Feminism, Jack Halberstam actually managed to call religion the root of all evil, not stopping for a moment to think about where his concept of evil was coming from and why that's a way that you can dismiss things. But this assumption is, is, is less than 100 years old. But we have bought it so thoroughly and completely that we've lost track of a lot of queer and trans people. And the argument has been really soundly made by, by a number of scholars now that this assumption also keeps queerness white and transness. And that's also, I mean, that's not just a bad assumption, it's politically dangerous. Yeah, Dr. Wilcox, thank you for bringing that up. And especially when we're talking about queerness being kept white and transness being kept white. And when you said that, I was thinking a lot about identity politics and not identity politics as, you know, we may see it broadcast on the news, but identity politics in terms of intersectionality as method and how it's really critical as scholars for us to understand how identities are different and they vary in different people and constructing them as whole. My next question for you, Dr. Wilcox, is there's often this feeling of spiritual fragmentation among queer folk. And what I mean by this is that more than often, queer folk feel this painful and frightening feeling of their old sense of identity, whether that be religious or spiritual, crumble and weigh and fall as they enter this new territory of exploring their queerness that to many people feels unknown. Do you have any advice to those navigating these feelings as a scholar of religion who focuses on the intersections of religion and sexuality? Well, one thing that we know is, and this is, this is from, from sociological research as, as well as from research in religious studies more, more narrowly or more strictly. One thing that we know is that people do, people who are interested in having a connection to religion and or spirituality I'm going to say religion from, from now on, just because, as you know, in religious studies, we consider all of that to fall within religion. When I'm talking to a more general audience that I haven't explained that to, I'll often say religion and or, and or spirituality. People for whom that is important do often end up finding it in the end. They find it in a number of different ways. There are people who really do feel like they can't find it without 
accepting this, this false story that religion and queerness don't go together and that they have to pick one or the other. That's really not true. It's not true even in the most conservative of religions, unless what you do is, is agree that you're going to go with the dominant mainstream interpretation of that religion. But I have personally talked to people from such a wide range of religious traditions around the world, such a wide range of perspectives from within those traditions, certainly within Christianity, from fundamentalist and evangelical, all the way through to very, very progressive Christians, but also Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, I could keep going, who have found their own way by saying, I'm not going to let people who don't have my experience tell me is that there is not room for me in, in this world, in the world that I belong in. And I'm going to trust my own voice and my own perspective. And from there, um, it, in my own research, uh, particularly earlier in my career, where I was asking exactly these kinds of questions in that context, specifically with Christians, but later with people from a wide variety of traditions, and, and asking the question, how do people come to a point where these things that that both queer folks, both other queer folks and other members of their religious tradition who are not queer say, don't go together. How do they come to a point where they say, well, of course they do. And it's really not through rational argument first. It's not through all of those great queer theological and queer biblical studies and other forms of, of confessional queer work. It's not through that is not through the trans theology and the trans confessional work. It is through making a decision within themselves that they're not going to let anybody else tell them who belongs and who doesn't, where they belong and where they don't when those people have not had the same experiences that they have. And then having realized, like in the context of, of Christians in particular, having realized, no, God really does accept me for who I am. Then they go, all right, well, if that's true, then, then what exactly is it that, that folks that are saying it's not true are missing? And then the biblical arguments and the theology and so on are, are helpful. But it, it really, it really starts, it really starts with where, with where people are themselves. Yeah. And you touched on about earlier questions in your research. I'm wondering if we can take that one step further. How do we really spotlight as students and also as scholars the role of religion in queer rights to transform and contextualize the history of queer resistance and also social movements? I think we tell those stories. I think we do. Historically, especially, they're united when I when I mentioned Heather White. Anthony Petro also has been doing a lot of this work. And there are many more folks that are just coming through graduate school, folks that have recently graduated, folks that have been doing that work, but sort of quietly on the side who are starting to move more to the center. There are, are I should mention Monique Moultrie's work as well. And again, I'm, I'm, there are so many others that I'm, that I'm leaving out because you don't want me sitting here just listing off a litany of, of listing off a bibliography. But that's just the people that are telling the, the history. And then there are so many more of us that are also telling stories about the present. So I think it's, it's, yeah, it's getting the word out there. And it's, if you're not going to go get a PhD, you can do that work as a journalist. And also, 
it's sort of everyday stuff. Like, like when your friend rolls their eyes and says, ah, religion, you know, I joke about people making the knee jerk assumption that religion is the opiate of the queers and the women. You know, you can intervene in that and say, actually, actually, you know, if you follow a particular assimilationist form of queer politics and you think that that's really important, guess what? Some of the most important people involved in the same sex marriage rights movement were religious leaders. Not only that, but one of the earliest leaders of a church and soon after that a denomination founded by and for trans and queer people was one of the plaintiffs in one of the in one of the Supreme Court cases. So religion is at the center of this, one of the earliest, one of the earliest coalitions between cis straight people and trans and queer people around trans and queer rights was a coalition between liberal clergy and queer and trans folks that was in San Francisco, the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. So that story is there, but it's a story that we've been encouraged to ignore, that we've been encouraged to silence. It's also a story that makes religion equal Christianity. And we leave out the really important role, for instance, that many rabbis and that other Jewish activists have played. We leave out the important role that so many other religious traditions have played and continue to play in queer rights, in queer politics, and in queer and trans communities in general. All of that gets left out when we tell this story. And we need to ask who wants us to tell that story and why? Should we really be buying it? Yeah, thank you, Professor Wilcoxon. For me, that really brings up thinking about in my time at Skidmore and my past courses, what type of queerness has been globalized? And specifically when it comes to queer religion, what type of queerness has been globalized in religious settings? And that's more than often Christianity. I'm wondering if you can take us throughout the duration of your career, what is the biggest change or shift you've seen in religious studies and gender studies? I think Focusing more specifically on on queer and trans studies in religion, I think just a shift to it being a shift to that being a class that you can take at Skidmore, a shift to that being a class that people can take in a lot of their schools, a shift to that being something that you can graduate with a PhD with a dissertation focused on this topic and have a lot of interest on the job market as opposed to everybody avoiding you. Or if they decide from your CV that you're white, bringing you in as the, the safe diversity candidate, not so they don't have to invite people of color, but then you still don't get the job. Like you were the one that checked their box, but, but not the one that they actually saw as being someone that they wanted to, to sort of live with for the rest of their careers or for however long the the when I graduated when I was going through grad school I'm thinking about this to be sure I'm right yeah when I was going through grad school no one that I can think of off the top of my head had gotten tenure in a religious studies department having started their career doing work in this field and not specifically queer studies trans studies is an even bigger fight and and is in a much more precarious position still in, within the study of religion. And likewise, 
the study of religion within queer and trans studies is still is still fairly marginalized. Religious studies has opened up more than than queer and trans studies have to that to that intersection. But it, it that's been a really big change. And I the very first conference I ever went to in my doctoral program, which was the second national conference that I had been to in my entire life. The panel on, and it used these words, <laughs> these are fighting words, and they were then too, the panel on quote unquote religion and homosexuality was a whole bunch of straight people studying straight people and what they thought about queer people, which I thought was pretty appalling. So, you know, that, that has changed as well. We no longer have to have receptions for queer and trans scholars in religion, regardless of what they study. We no longer have to have the receptions in a hotel basement behind a closed door. We practically had a handshake um, and, and pass the hat, literally pass the hat. It was a hat that you put cash into to pay for the reception. And, and now there is a committee in the American Academy of Religion on the status of LGBTIQ people in the profession. And that committee sponsors a reception that gets hundreds of people. And it's right there out in the open. The field has just really changed radically. And I think that's very exciting. We're close to having a journal. We have an annual conference. We may be moving in the direction of having a, a professional society for this research. And, and that was when I was going through college and through grad school, that was unheard of. Yeah, there is a lot of work to be done in religious studies. And I'm thinking, you know, back to my junior year when I took my queer religion class and how white-centered our course syllabus was. But Dr. Wilcox, I want to take us on a little bit of a different direction because I'm so excited to have you here. For our listeners who may not know, Dr. Wilcox's book, Queer Nuns, was really the inspiration for my capstone. So Dr. Wilcox, I'm wondering if you can outline for our listeners who may not have read your book, what is serious parody? Yeah, so in essence, serious parody is when a, a group in a non-dominant position of power, the power is really important here. This is not a one-size-fits-all, it works in all directions kind of thing. A group in a non-dominant position of power engages in parody of a dominant group, particularly a dominant group that, that they are directly oppressed by, while at the same time claiming for themselves aspects of that dominant group that they consider positive. So it is a form of protest, but it's a complicated form of protest that also says we're not standing outside this. We are part of this too, but we're doing it better. Yeah, and maybe I should have prefaced this for our readers where serious parody comes from, but it comes from your book, Queer Nuns. And I'm wondering how you know you came to study the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Your book traces the sisters from, you know, the United States all the way to Canada, to the United Kingdom, specifically in Scotland, and all the way to Australia and different parts of the world. Can you outline how you came into studying the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence for us? Yeah, I've, I've wanted to study the sisters for a really long time. And in many ways, my interest in the sisters helped me learn a couple of things methodologically. First, it taught me to follow my gut because for the longest time, I couldn't figure out how to justify 
a study of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence as being sort of quote unquote proper religious studies work. Now I wanna come back to that question of what is proper religious studies too, but I had a hunch. There was something that kept pulling me back to the sisters. And I, I write in the book, I, I literally don't remember the first time I met a sister. I recently rediscovered the pictures back when they, you know, it was actual film and you got prints at the drugstore. I recently discovered pictures of the pride parade. That is my first conscious memory of the sisters. And yet I'm quite certain I already knew who they were. I was just really excited to see them because I'd been away from San Francisco for a while and I didn't know that they existed in any other place. They already existed internationally at the time, but I didn't know that. So I found those pictures. And already then I was, I was a master's student at the time and already then I was really intrigued by them. And it was kind of my religious studies antennae that were, that were really sparking, but I couldn't explain it. And so I felt like I couldn't justify it. And what I really learned when I got into the project and realized when I got into the project, once I found a justification, um, which was simply that I was told by a, a sister who took part in my second book project, which was the one before Queer Nuns, that, that a lot of the sisters in the house she was a part of, which was the Los Angeles house, considered their work with the sisters to be an expression of their spirituality. And then it was kind of like all the bells went off and I was like, okay, there it is. There's my hook. I can do this. And at the time it would have been a fairly risky project to do as a pre-tenure project. So I also waited until I got tenure. Nowadays, I don't think it would be, but the field has changed quite a bit. Once I started really getting into the analysis, I realized that that being with the sisters as a part of your spiritual expression was really not the core religious studies aspect of the book anyway. It wasn't the most interesting part of the sisters from a religious studies perspective. So my gut knew that a long time before my brain knew it. And that's really taught me to trust my instincts. When my gut says there's something here, not to insist, oh, well, my brain can't figure out what it is. So, you know, my gut must be wrong, but to go, no, nah, my gut's right. My brain just hasn't caught up. So give it time, sit with it, study it. And, and that results in what I, what I often joke about, which is that my research method is something akin to running happily after shiny things. And once I catch them, then I go, oh, what is that? Oh, this is interesting. Okay, I think I was, it was shiny. That's, yep, that's true. So let's figure out what it is. But what this means for religious studies also is that I think we get caught too easily. And I think we too easily teach our students the, the, the idea that religious studies is simply the study of things that are very recognizably religion. And yet that's never all that religious studies, that has never been all that religious studies was. And certainly today we're thinking about the concept of religion. We're thinking about the idea that religion is a social construct that, that, that in order to really understand how the, the concept of religion works in any given context in any given society, we have to look at all the different ways that people use it. So when there are people who claim to be queer nuns, 
That's of course a study about religion that shouldn't need justification, but it still does in, in some circles in the field. And so I think that this is, this is also something really important that queer and trans studies and religion bring to the field. Yeah, and you kind of just touched upon how, you know, the sisters are an example of a group that are situating themselves within various discourses that they identify with. You say in the book that the sisters live secular lives outside of the order. Can you talk about how the sisters use the concept of secularism or your understanding of how they use it as a scholar? And what does this tell us really, I guess, about the complex intersections and relationships between secularism and religion? So the concept of the secular depends on the concept of the religious for its very existence. And, and this is, I think, probably the most important thing. There's a lot of really good work going on right now on how societies, particularly but not solely the U.S., conceptualize the secular, what it is to be secular as, as a person, as a society, as a state, as a government, and, and the ways in which that's typically a false claim. And at the very least is a claim that relies fundamentally on the presence of religion to define itself over against. The sisters use the concept of secular, so they don't say secularism. They use it as an adjective, not, not as a noun, either as the secular or as secularism. They use the concept of secular in a way that is borrowed, like much of their discourse from Roman Catholicism. So for them, their secular lives are their lives outside the order. But that gets really interesting really fast because what they do religiously or spiritually outside of their roles as sisters is part of their secular lives. And I think this is such a good example. There are plenty of people who would counter argue and say, no, this is just like, this is what happens when you parody. This is what happens when you take things out of context is you end up with these sort of incommensurate or, or in inarticulate uses of the term. But for me, when you see that kind of usage sort of force the term to start breaking down, I think that tells us a lot about where, about the limits of the concept and also about its, its sort of underlying base. So if you can have these sisters talking up in, in language borrowed from monastic tradition that is full-time, talking about their part-time monastic tradition as being the opposite of their secular lives, and then have their secular lives be also sometimes a place where religion or spirituality happens, I think that really shows us a lot about the, the flexibility, the variability, and the slippages in, in the concept of the secular that feeds right into a lot of the other, a lot of the other research that's being done on how that, how that term is used. Going back to thinking about marriage equality in the United States and a lot of religious leaders being involved heavily in that, why do we see social movements tend to characterize LGBTQ plus rights as exclusive from religion or as something separate? I haven't seen as much exclusion of queer religious people as I have seen this rhetoric that you're talking about, that, that religion is always against us, assumptions from all corners of politics that 
religion is on the side of a very particular form of social conservatism that is exclusionary of all trans and queer people. The sisters, as you know, are, are pretty different. They're not a religious group. And this is always important to say, because I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with them assume that they are. And other people who are familiar with them are completely startled to see a religious studies scholar studying them because they thought that they were nothing but parody, which is why I had to come up with the term serious parody. That's, that's my own coinage. It's my own term. And it came out of the fact that I couldn't, there were no existing terms that I could find. And I spent a fair amount of time looking that helped me understand this complicated relationship wherein the sisters castigate and protest the Roman Catholic hierarchy, while at the same time, one of the one of the quickest ways to make a sister cry is for a Roman Catholic nun to tell her, I see you, I recognize you, we are doing the same thing, we are providing the same service to our communities, I respect the work you're doing. So there's this profound respect for nuns in general, Roman Catholic nuns in particular, sisters understand themselves as emulating Roman Catholic nuns, just as they simultaneously protest and critique the Roman Catholic Church, and of course do many, 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 many more things as well. They're not a religious group, but they are engaged in commentary with religion. Some of them are religious practitioners, some of them are even Catholic, and some are not. And that very fact already is a shock to a lot of people. Not just that there are some sisters who are Catholic, but that there are some sisters who are religious and that there are sisters that are not, that it's possible to be a nun in the sense that the sisters are using it, which is also not parodic and also something that we should, well, it's partially parodic, it's complicated, right? But they're very serious about being nuns. And that's why, that's why I needed the concept of seriousness and parody together at the same time that I think is unusual. To go back to your question about politics then, I think it's, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that we have been sold and have bought this story that religion, queerness, and transness don't go together, and that more deeply, religion and sex don't go together except in certain orientalized contexts. So we're perfectly okay saying, oh, religion, sex, those people out over there. And this is, again, I'm talking in particular this is not solely, but in particular, this affects global North, global West cultures. So then, okay, oh, religion and sex might go together in this other religion that these other people practice in the global South, global East, but, but proper religion or true religion and sex don't go together, which is ridiculous because there are great scholarly work on evangelical sex manuals that were written in the 70s as a response to the secular sex manuals that contained images that conservative Christians felt were sinful to look at, but they still needed sex advice. So sex and religion have always gone together, but that's not something that is widely acknowledged even by people for whom they do. And that's interesting too. Yeah, and I wanted to get back to you and your work with this question. As a scholar of religious studies who's deeply involved in queer studies, how do you reconcile with acts of religious violence against queer folk? 
Well, I think it's important to be talking about these things. So if we think about religious studies as the study of religion as a human phenomenon, then whether we're talking about homophobic and transphobic forms of religion or whether we're talking about profoundly queer and profoundly trans forms of religion or anything in between, that's something for religious studies scholars to talk about, to think about, to look at. I am not one of those people who does well living with transphobia and homophobia in my head all the time. So that's not where my research is. I'm much, much more interested in originally in thinking about the, the spaces that queer and trans folks have made for themselves within religion. And, and more recently in, in thinking more provocatively about the ways that religious studies itself is falling short of its own mandates by continuing to insist on a predominantly cisgender and straight or at the very most homonormative approach to, to studying religion, approach to defining religion. So uh, what we're seeing in terms of, of homophobic and transphobic violence is, is absolutely also about religion. But I wanna say this very carefully in the context of Pulse because we're talking about an attacker who knew very little about Islam. But the story got told in queer and trans communities that are more than happy to be actively Islamophobic. That, and, and this is a story that President Trump was also more than happy to put forward and more than happy to talk about a lot, which again, I think should give anybody with liberal, progressive, or radical leanings pause the story was put forward that this was just yet another predictable Muslim attack on trans and queer people. There is no space for trans and queer Muslims in that narrative. There's also no space for trans and queer people to necessarily be religious. And yet a number of people have written about the sacred importance of gay bars. It's really important to remember that that was Latinx night at the Pulse. So there were a lot of Latinx people there. There were queer and trans people without documents recognized by the US who had to think about their own safety in multiple and really complex ways during and after the violence. That was a sacred space. And yet all that we hear about in terms, if you were to Google, you know, pulse shootings and religion, I haven't tried this, but I bet you a lot of money you're going to get all kinds of stuff about how oh, all Muslims are, you know, queerphobic and transphobic. This is a narrative that non-Muslim trans and queer people in the United States have, particularly white folks, have been all too willing to buy into as a part of the price of their admission to full whiteness and full citizenship in the U.S. And it drives us apart from the people that we should be supporting the people that we should be speaking out with and standing side by side with. Yeah, and my next question really is a follow-up, and that even if it seems that at glance queer rights have primarily been achieved in secular environments, the relationship between queer liberation and secularism has a really complex and contradictory history. You even know, and you noted earlier, that it's time for queer studies to relinquish its conviction that religion is only, always, and everywhere the opiate of queers. This narrative suggests that queer individuals in religious societies are able to hold both queer and religious identities. How, as scholars of religion, do we move forward to create an account 
on queer religion that accounts for networks of power and authority that exist in race, gender, socioeconomic status, and other marginalized identities at the intersections of religion and sexuality. And what I mean by this is that in understanding queer religious liberation, queer theory, religious studies, and gender studies, we must move away from centering white, gay, Western men as the sole author of LGBTQ plus experiences. In terms of the predominance of whiteness, and I would say also of Christianity and particularly of Protestantism and of cis folks and of men, those are all charges that trans and queer studies and religion are vulnerable to. It's for a reason. We are only one generation in to, and the generation really that we're talking about is the generation that was hit by the 2008 recession and really struggled to get a foothold in the academic job market, which was bad enough already before the recession hit. We're really only one generation into it being fully safe for people to do queer studies in religion. Trans studies in religion, I think, is getting to that point as well, but more slowly, particularly when it's done by openly trans people. There's still a huge amount of transphobia. Uh, and particularly trans misogyny in the academy in general and in religious studies specifically. So just like when you look at queer studies more broadly and you look at the early years and it was being done almost entirely by white cis gay men, that's for a number of reasons. But one of them is they were the folks that were actually able to get hired onto the tenure track. They were the folks that were able to get tenure. And they were there for the folks that were able to have a certain amount of academic freedom to do this kind of work that at the time was so groundbreaking and so shocking that people were not getting tenure for doing it. I am among the first people to get tenure doing, having started my career doing work in this field. And I got tenure approximately 15 years ago. So that's how new the field is. And I don't think it's any accident that this happened to somebody that, that, you know, one of the people among those who first got tenure is white and masculine presenting. So it is something that, that I'm somebody who was assigned female at birth and that I'm somebody who is still read by people as a woman. And that is already something that being masculine presenting counterbalances that in terms of the ways that stereotyping and bias work in the academy. So some of what's happening is simply that structural constraints have prevented a lot of the scholars who are really pushing to do this work from making it into grad school, from making it through grad school, from making it out of grad school into positions where they can publish, where they are not so marginalized that they are teaching day-to-day -day solely to put bread on the table and a roof over their heads. That's a problem we need to address and, and that a lot of us are working really actively on. And um, in terms of, of, so how do we do that? First of all, we make the academy more inclusive and we do it not by saying, oh, where are all these people? But by creating a place at the table that people can change to suit themselves. You do not invite someone over for dinner and then refuse to let them move the furniture around so that they can actually sit down or wheel up to the table. You create a table where everyone can make themselves comfortable and make their own contribution. And we are still working on doing that and we need to keep doing it. 
there is movement towards um, a book series that will focus in particular on, on work that's breaking this ground. A lot of it is happening outside of religious studies right now. Scholars in ethnic studies, scholars in English um, are doing some, and in gender studies are doing some of this really, really important work. And that should cause religious studies both to be willing to read promiscuously far outside what we consider to be the boundaries of our field, and also to ask ourselves, what can we do differently to create greater space for these scholars who are interested in doing this kind of work to do it within our field? My last question for you, Dr. Wilcox, is if we were stuck in an elevator for five minutes and you had to tell me something about your research and scholarship related to religious studies and queer studies, what would that be? I'll tell you in one sentence, but then in the rest of the five minutes, you can say, what, is it, what exactly does that mean? In one sentence, it's that if religious studies actually paid attention and took seriously what trans and queer people have to say about religion, it would upturn the entire field. I think that is the perfect place to finish. Dr. Wilcox, thank you for joining us today, and thank you so much for your time and scholarship. 